listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for, gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, Show your support to Baronfig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single origin coffees. They're committed to long term sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10, and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Hassan Basiri. Hassan is Vice President of Portfolio Management at ARCA, where he's responsible for trading and research, among other duties, for the ARCA Digital Assets Fund. Hassan previously served as International M&A Senior Manager at KPMG, where he focused on structuring and analyzing multinational and private equity M&A transactions. He's a CFA charterholder and holds a Master of Laws in Taxation from Northwestern University School of Law, a JD from Brooklyn Law School, and a BA in economics from UCLA. Enjoy my conversation with Hassan Basiri. Hassan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you here. So first thing we like to start off with guests is going back to 2008 global financial crisis. Up until then, we, we saw quite a few global crisis and things around the world happen, long-term capital management, um, SNL crisis, uh, tech bubble, <laughs> Russian crisis, 98, coinciding with LTCM. You could go down the list, but yep. nothing was quite like 2008. So take us back to what you were doing to that time and help us frame the conversation. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so I was actually in law school in 2008 
uh, I'd, uh, like I was in my last year and I had an offer from a law firm to start, uh, you know, in, in August after the bar. And, uh, then, you know, the great financial crisis happened and it accelerated quickly. And so my offer from the firm was pulled. Uh, so I, I had to kind of find, uh, something else to do for a little while. And, uh, like I, at the time I didn't really know what I would do because I mean, I was always going to be a lawyer and they told me basically to stay away for a little bit. Uh, and then they would pay my salary and I could kind of like go back to school or travel or whatever. So I just traveled for a bit, uh, until kind of the situation, uh, alleviated, you know, we got, you know, uh, QE1 and that kind of propped the markets, uh, and TARP. And so after that year, I started my career. Um, but ever since that time, I, I, I kind of got more and more, uh, worried about the global uh, macroeconomic state. And, uh, that's kind of how I got into crypto. Uh, around like 2011. Yeah, so let's transition into how you came into crypto and this whole digital asset world. I, I was excited to have you on with your varied background, having a law degree, you know, being a lawyer, also being a charter holder, and having a deep experience in digital assets. So let's, yeah. let's get into it. <laughs> oh man, uh, you're pumping my you're pumping my confidence here. Um, yeah, so it's interesting story actually. So I was actually sitting at uh in Louisiana at uh the Harrah's at uh, from one of my buddies' bachelor parties, and we're just sitting there drinking. And my brother uh goes, "Have you read this? Uh, this is 2013." He goes, "Have you read this BuzzFeed article about uh the Silk Road?" And I was like, "Nah, man. What are you? What are you? What are you talking about?" And he's like, "Apparently, there's a website where you can buy any drug." using this like magic internet money called Bitcoin. And I was like, what, like, I don't even understand what you're saying. Like back up and take me through it. And he was like, I don't really get it. So I, I mean, I went home, uh, read the Buzzfeed article. Uh, and I mean, you know, I, I wasn't really interested in, in buying drugs online. Uh, but I did want to check it out and I did want to check out what Bitcoin was. And he was basically telling me at the time that it was like a pseudo anonymous currency, uh, where you could transfer it very quickly, or, or like it, it would basically you could transfer money anywhere within an hour, and it's very very interesting to to check out. So I mean, I read the whole article, fell down the rabbit hole, read the white paper, and um, ever since then I've been a big Bitcoin believer, big Bitcoin bull. Um, I've been trading crypto in the PA since uh, around 2013, 2014. And, uh, you know, I have never really looked back and like, obviously it's been volatile since then. I mean, it was like, went from like three to a hundred to a thousand back to a hundred and up to 20 and where we are today. But ever since then, it's just been a, a big passion of mine. And, and I knew that I wanted to leave law, uh, forever. Like, it's just not for me. I'm much more analytical and numbers based. And, uh, I trade a lot of derivatives, uh, and options for ARCA. So, um, I just think right now holding Bitcoin and trading Bitcoin is, is kind of the best risk reward you can get, especially with where we are, uh, from like a market perspective. So yeah, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. And as far as when you got your charter, the CFA for people who know, it's obviously three exams and it happens over a period of years, but was that before or after the law degree? That was after. Uh, so what I did as a lawyer, I was doing, so what I did as a lawyer, I was doing like a lot of international M&A. So I would basically structure transactions for companies buying other companies. 
Um, and I would do it in a way where you could, you could basically use borrowed money to buy the company. Uh, and then when you buy the company, you're, it's actually a benefit because the borrowed money that you're using, you get an interest reduction on that. Um, and I would do a lot of work like modeling, uh, revenue synergies and cost synergies and thinking about like product market fit within regions and thinking about how a company's brand and IP could increase in value in certain markets based on how much market share it has. And so I did a lot of that uh, as an attorney. And most of my clients were, you know, private equity funds and uh, and big S&P companies. And so I kind of being a numbers based person, I, I was kind of always over uh, the paper pushing and uh, you know, just writing a lot. And I got more and more into the analytics. And I just thought, you know, if I want to make a transition into, uh, traditional finance, well, I guess crypto is non-traditional, but if I want to make a transition, I should, I should have some kind, some type of, uh, numerical, uh, qualification. And the CFA definitely helped me with that. I actually banged it out in, uh, one and a half years instead of the normal three because I took level one in December and then backed it with June, uh, in uh, level two in June. So. That's like a little bit. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They, nice. they offer, yeah. They offer level one in, in June and December. So if you take level one in December, then you could take level two in June. So you just kind of knock out like half a year, right? Like that. Interesting. I, I know at least one person where they completed one and two and they, I think they did two or three attempts at, at, at the third level and then they, they just kind of gave up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, but, I'm, not, um, I, I, I'm not a quitter. I'm a lot of things. I just, a quitter is not one of them, but yeah, no, it's hard, man. It's like, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, you know what the problem is with these, these, uh, these tests is that people like just look at the test as like the end result, but it's really like the beginning. It's kind of like the bar, like the bar is just the memorization. Um, and like the CFA is very similar to memorization, but you're supposed to get muscle memory out of it. Like, how do I think about this problem? How do I think about this fact pattern? How do I think about these, these numbers? Like what, what do I, what have I been taught and how can I apply what I've been taught to make the best analytical or legal decision possible based on these facts and based on these numbers? So it's tough for a lot of people to kind of move away from the mindset of like, oh, okay, I, I did the test. I, I have the knowledge now. The test is the start. It's not the end. But yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And after talking about that law, obviously finance and some of those other things you're interested in, let's talk about just kind of the digital asset landscape as a whole. And we've talked on the show a couple of times about how it just takes someone from a, who understands a lot of different disciplines. So you have developers and programmers who kind of come to the space with a distributed systems background. You have the Austrian economics types. Maybe they're into gold and those types of things, and they they gravitate to that aspect of Bitcoin. And then you have uh, all of these other kind of you know disciplines that kind of come together, security um, and those types of things. So let's talk about just from a broad standpoint how you how you view this blockchain, <laughs> digital assets, and as you said, the crypto is kind of a catch-all. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So here's how I think about it. And I think that in general, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. It requires like a wide a range of disciplines, like to just belabor your, that point a little bit. Um, when I started at Arca, we had a team of developers that were supposed to just be doing, uh, due diligence on the code, uh, for a lot of the, the chains we were looking at. 
Um, we were talking to economists because obviously, you know, you need a token model that works, that drives value from something besides speculation. Theoretically, this is the, this is the shill that you need to understand tokenomics and why tokens accrue value. Uh, you need a risk manager because obviously in crypto, um, there's, you know, you can make or lose 40% within an hour and basically nothing's happened other than the price changes. Um, right. <laughs> you need, you need a, like when you're investing in a lot of small and, and, and like smaller teams, smaller projects for venture style investing, you need someone that has done due diligence on venture in the sense that they talk to the teams, they talk to the founders, they talk to the entrepreneurs and they psychologically can analyze them and understand what drives them. Um, because a lot of this stuff, like, you know, when you're investing in these early stage companies, you're investing in people. Um, so it's a lot of venture style investing, like where you may get into the product for, or you may buy or invest for one reason and the product changes and the product market fit changes and going to market and the strategy of going to market changes. And so it's a lot more than just, Oh, I think this is a good idea. Or it's a lot more like, I think this person has a vision and while that vision may change, this person's drive to realize that vision won't change. So you need a little bit of like VC due diligence background too. And we have that at ARCA. Um, and finally, yeah, you need a lot of, you need a derivatives trader. You need someone that understands options and Greeks and deltas, uh, and how to kind of manage the book. Um, especially for funds that are not 100% Bitcoin. So like for ARCA, you know, we, we have a Delta positive mandate, meaning like we're never, we don't go short generally. So how do you manage your risk in something as volatile as, as Bitcoin? If you can't be net short, you have to, you know, go to cash or buy puts or think about ways to lighten up on risk. Um, and like look at cross asset correlations and betas and all these things. So just right there, you know, you're, you're touching, economics, finance, game theory, venture, uh, you know, we have a legal team that's determined, it helps us determine whether some of these assets we're buying are securities or not. It's, uh, it's like multidisciplinary. It's very hard. Yeah, and as you mentioned, all all the risk management and all the due diligence and things that goes on on the on the token level, and then obviously managing all the exchange relationships and things like that. In your view, as far as investors looking at funds, and obviously there's so many rules as far as being a accredited investor or a qualified purchaser and all those types of things, um, mainly on the high net worth side. So. You know, but investors looking at these types of funds, do you think it matters as much the underlying assets that you're trading or should the marketing be more focused on just that kind of the alpha generation and, and that the, that the volatility is there to be able to achieve that alpha in this new, you know, digital asset market? Because some would argue, you know, it doesn't really matter the underlying asset. It could be a, a traditional kind of CTA. Type manager, commodity trend, um, I'm blanking on it. <laughs> no. Uh, and then, you know, other types of strategies that are trading, you know, could be anything, uh, but just trying to achieve that alpha in whatever market it is. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I'm in the, I'm in the latter camp. Like I, I don't think, I don't think it matters whether these assets, these digital assets are securities or not. I think. It's, it's the underlying and the volatility of the underlying and the growth prospects, uh, and TAM 
of the asset that drives the alpha. It doesn't matter whether it's a security or not. Obviously, for legal and, and regulatory reasons, it does matter. And that's why we have a legal team that helps us uh, ensure that we're always on the correct side of the law. Uh, and that's why we have our structure, our hedge fund structure set up the way it is. Um, but for purposes of investors getting into the space, um, if you're not just going to buy and hold Bitcoin, uh, I think you do need a professional asset manager that understands uh, how to drive alpha and where that alpha comes from. And with respect to crypto and, and Bitcoin in particular, it, you know, a lot of some of the most successful traders in crypto are former commodities traders, uh, and, uh, f- former FX traders. And the reason being is because, uh, you know, for FX, it's a lot of technical analysis. Um, and we have one of those pe- people in house. Um, and for commodities, it's a lot of momentum driven. Uh, and momentum driven strategies. And it's, it's, it's not a, it's not even a secret in crypto. Crypto is momentum driven. It's a reflexive asset. Like the higher the price goes, the more desirable it gets, uh, which gives people confidence to, to buy it. And then that, that in turn makes the price go higher. That gives people more confidence. Uh, and it's the inverse is also true. The lower the price goes, the less desirable the asset is, the more people sell it, which drives the price lower. That reflexivity and momentum is a very important and uh defining characteristic of bitcoin and crypto in general um and that yeah go ahead yeah no and you know i'm just reminded of the old books the the jack schwager market wizards and you have uh, some of the old school um market technicians and that crosses over into some of the macro traders and the kind of the old gunslingers back in the day. Um, one guy I, I saw was getting into Bitcoin too is John Bollinger of the, I used to read the Bollinger bands uh, books when I was learning about trading. And um, so that kind of brings me to the next topic, which is uh, Paul Tudor Jones. He kind of made this announcement about, you know, he was interested in Bitcoin um, and people were kind of, making a big deal about that but it the point got brought up that okay he's he's buying uh options or futures or something like that maybe not yes. the underlying security um so let's talk a, a little bit about the derivatives markets and how investors are able to you know trade and and get into the asset class that way because that's yeah. a, a huge market and as you mentioned that's kind of where a lot of this stuff is is, is heading yeah so for someone like uh Paul Tudor Jones, I don't know what he manages. I think it's like like let's just say he manages a hundred billion dollars. Just to make the number simple, and he said he has a low single digit uh allocation to Bitcoin. So that would put him. Let's just say he has one percent. That means he has a billion dollars of exposure. I don't know if he does. I haven't done. This is just back of the envelope, just estimating. Paul Tudor Jones cannot go out and buy. $1 billion of spot Bitcoin on the markets for a few reasons. One, he would drive the price up massively immediately. And two, uh, you know, I, these asset managers are not, these professional asset managers are not trading OTC. They're not trading on Binance or BitMEX. They're trading on the CME, which is a regulated, uh, regulated futures exchange. Uh, and so the point is, is that like, if he wants exposure to the underlying, he goes to the CME and he's able to trade contracts that give him exposure to the underlying. It's no different than like big banks taking exposure in oil based on an, a few, in a futures market rather than the underlying spot. You don't actually need to hold spot to get exposure to Bitcoin. You could trade derivatives. 
And it, we're seeing that in the CME Bitcoin futures total open interest. So in one month from roughly April 15th to today, uh, the open interest has gone from 181 million to 529 million. Okay. So that's about a three X increase. Um, and what that tells me is that one, if Paul Tudor Jones and I think Renaissance Technology, the other guy, the I'm forgetting the guy's name, but he's a big, big time. Yeah, yeah. If these guys are allocating to Bitcoin, they're not fully positioned yet. Uh, because like we said, like they got to get to at least a billion dollars at a 1% exposure level. And CME is not there yet. Um, so they're probably legging in. I know a lot of, I know a lot of, uh, crypto traders are conspiracy theorists and we're saying that Paul Tudor Jones bought his, bought his bag in March and then went on CNBC to shill it and dump it. I can promise right. you, I can promise you he's not doing that. These guys, like if you look at the type of analysis that, uh, PTJ did, these guys do years and years and years of research to initiate a position and they're not trying to flip it in a few months for a hundred percent gain. Um, it's just not the way they do business. It's just, it's, it's like the way crypto traders think, but like as traditional finance finds its ways into Bitcoin, um, you're going to see a lot of change in, uh, the narratives of what drives price and it's going to be interesting. Yeah. And years ago, I remember when kind of the first large asset manager to get into the space was Fortress and, a lot of people know about uh, Mike Novogratz and kind of what happened there. And then that fund actually got spun out and um, got acquired by Pantera. And a l- largely a lot of it was converted to kind of venture investments and things. But, you know, at the time there were huge losses on that, on that underlying Bitcoin, which was, <laughs> you know, because of the volatility, but, um, I'm not sure how much of that they hung on to and how much was sold, but I think, uh, as I understand it, Pantera absorbed a lot of that. But we've seen different people get involved along the way. One pretty notable guy is uh, Bill Miller, uh, obviously famous for beating the S&P for many, many years and then had several losing years. So, But really smart guy, value investor. He has been pretty public about uh, owning Bitcoin and a couple of his hedge funds. Of course, he left Leg Mason and opened up his own shop. Um, so we've we've seen different people pop up, and then more recently, we've seen uh, Raul Paul with uh, Real Vision and and some people kind of in that universe being able to uh, explain the benefits, and it's been kind of infiltrating that that macro universe. What's your view there and why do you, why do you think this is taking so long? You kind of alluded to it, but it comes down to kind of years of research and understanding before a position gets put on many times. Yeah. Yeah. So look, I think, I think these, these macro guys, uh, they all have valid points. Like, okay. So S and P earnings for 2020, uh, the, the S and P was supposed to earn $175. Uh, in total on an EPS basis this year, that's been revised to 125. For 2021, it was 193. That was revised to 161. And the S&P right now is sitting, uh, I think, what is it? 20, 2800 roughly. So like by any, by any stretch of the imagination, that multiple is expensive. You know, 2800 divided by 125, it's 22 times earnings. It's pretty bad. Uh, so, I mean, that's not bad, but valuations are stretched, right? 
And so these guys are sitting there saying, okay, well, prices, <laughs> price is going up, but earnings are going down. So multiples are expansion, expanding. And the Fed balance sheet just doubled from four to four to eight. Rates are basically at zero. And what we're seeing is that in the medium term with this Fed printing, in the medium term, liquidity moves markets, right? Uh, that's why the market's like 30% off the lows from March. Um, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous bounce. But what these macro guys are saying is like the risk reward is not great for equities right now. Um, and we're likely going to have some type of, uh, you know, like deflationary result from this or well, first, like that's the question. Is it going to be deflationary, inflationary in an inflationary, uh, result like Bitcoin? We think will do very well. Uh, it'll be a store of value like gold. Uh, people will want to own it and hold it as a hedge against their own local currency. Uh, but this takes a lot of time. Like it takes time for people to get comfortable that not holding the U.S. dollar. And right now, what you're seeing is despite the fact that the, the Fed is printing all this money, other company or other countries are printing their own money as well. So it's not so much that the U.S. dollar is getting devalued if other company or if other countries are printing their own as well and the dollar stays the reserve currency asset of the world. So to answer your question, I think this is just a slow process where maybe you look back after three or four years when the S&P hasn't returned anything and uh, gold is up and other historic uh, hedges have performed well, things like precious metals, commodities. Uh, commodities are also an inflation hedge. And in that asset class of inflation hedges store value, you know, Bitcoin fits pretty well in there. It's, you know, sovereign free. Uh, you know, it's not tied to any bank. It doesn't have a it doesn't have a king um, associated with it. And no one controls Bitcoin. It's just controlled by people that want to hold it and mine it and do all these things. So it is an attractive asset to have as both a store of value and as like idiot insurance, because you're seeing all this stuff happening in the world. You're seeing unprecedented amounts of, of QE and it's like you should have an allocation to something that could go up in this type of environment that people are forecasting. And that's why you see gold ripping. What's gold at right now? Uh, 1700 roughly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, these guys are all like, they're all allocating to things that they think will outperform. And another thing is like Raul Paul, he's a big, uh, he believes in uh, the dollar too, because he just thinks, uh, you know, eventually like, even though we're printing a lot of dollars, uh, other countries have borrowed so much money. They're short the dollar. They have to buy it back. So, uh, you know, that it doesn't mean that you can't have both in your portfolio. It just means Bitcoin should be a part of your full portfolio. And this is what we're saying. Yeah, I've, I've heard that theory and we've talked about it on the show a little bit um, or a handful of times. I know uh, there's a guy, Brent Johnson, he's been on Real Vision who has – this theory he calls kind of the milkshake theory, which yeah, is uh, yeah, one dollar and you know gold going up along with the dollar. And as you mentioned, there's kind of a, a realization out there now that all the G7 countries are just printing, printing, printing. So you know that actually, like you said, when you look at that in comparison to the dollar, um, it's it, it, that's one of the reasons why we haven't seen why we've seen the dollar like remain strong or at least. 
in that level, I guess it's around what, 95, 97, yeah. 98 on the Dixie, which is, yeah. uh, for listeners don't know, against a basket of currencies. So as you mentioned too, I think a lot, there's a lot of hyperbole where people will bring these scenarios about, uh, a Weimar Republic or in these like Venezuela type, um, inflation scenarios or these deflationary busts. But when you look at, uh, it's, kind of beating a dead horse but for listeners who don't know just when you look at the market cap of gold the eight to ten trillion um and then the market cap of bitcoin roughly 160 billion um you know that's a pretty long way to go and that could be a pretty interesting success story even if it captures some percentage of that and then um as a lot of people know here in the u.s bitcoin may even not even have to take off here in other countries like india uh, a lot of people store their wealth in gold, and obviously central banks hold it and those types of things. So there will be adoption here, but you can look and realize, uh, I think, different scenarios of success where maybe, it, you know, you're not uh, – it doesn't have to be, like, mainstream in the way that people think it's going to eat into the dollar's uh, monopoly, I guess. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Another thing is, like, beside – I agree with everything you're saying. Um, in terms of like the rate of adoption in countries with, with, uh, inflationary currencies, you know, you mentioned, uh, Venezuela, Iran just basically, uh, replaced the real with the Toban. And essentially what they did is they said one, uh, Toman is worth 10,000 reals. So they just basically cut four zeros off the real and they called it a Toman. Wow. And yeah, so that just happened like a few weeks ago. And I think, um, you know, on the backdrop of that, so like you have local countries adopting, um, like more uh, local countries accepting Bitcoin more. But another thing is like the boomers dying eventually and that transfer of wealth into the millennials and, uh, Gen Z's, they're going to buy Bitcoin. They're, they don't understand gold. They don't care about gold. Um, there's been a lot of data shown that like millennials like technology and they like, uh, and they like Bitcoin. And so when that value is transferred and, and mind you, you know, with Trump tax repealing, uh, with Trump repealing the estate tax, uh, over a certain amount, like there's a lot of wealth that's going to be transferred that's not going to the state. That wealth is going to likely, in our view, going to go into Bitcoin because that's what millennials want. That's what they're comfortable with. That's what they grew up with. They understand it. They are more technologically savvy and comfortable with uh, technology than their older parents. So I, I actually think the 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 transfer of wealth from the millennials down is another big, big tailwind for for uh, Bitcoin. Um, and these are going to be people that hold it. You know, right now you have a lot of traders, people that just are, you know, Punting Bitcoin on, on BitMEX or, uh, or Binance or, or, uh, Deribit, but like people that own it on the store of value and transfer, they're going to hold it and own it. And that's going to reduce and, and dull a lot of the volatility, uh, associated with it. But that's, you know, that again, that comes with time. Uh, it's not going to be this year, not going to be next year, maybe in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A couple of my friends have kids in that 10 to 15 range, and I hear stories about them on Twitch, and which I think has its own kind of um, not digital currency in the sense of like a blockchain or a token, but it's kind of their own internal currency, Fortnite, and the, I think it's the Fortnite Bucks. I'm not sure what they call it. Um, yeah. 
and then these in-game currencies. And like you said, just completely digital native where they're just, they grow up with an iPhone or an iPad in their hands and that's all they know. That's, that's what they know. And you could easily see them, you know, storing some of their wealth in Bitcoin. Um, and then kind of as a corollary, you could also see them using, um, in-game video, in kind of the in-game tokens for video games and, um, streaming channels and those types of things. So let's talk a little bit about kind of this whole other ecosystem that's out there of t- tokens trying to find a token model and even, uh, in-game type things that could be maybe more like reward points or credit card miles, but are still part of this ecosystem too. So what's your view on that piece? I know it's a broad uh, subject, but yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. So like uh, it is a broad subject, but it totally makes sense. So like at a high level, like when we look at investing or uh, taking a position in a token, the token model is a part of the decision-making process but it's just at one part. There's a lot of things we look at. But for the most part, when we're looking at like a video game, uh, we think blockchain gaming, uh, eventually there will be a killer blockchain game. And I'm not saying it's this year or next year, but eventually there will be. And we think that gaming, and this is not a unique thought, but like gaming will be a huge on-ramp for uh, crypto adoption. And the reason we think this is because it goes back to the youth factor, the fact that uh, a lot of these millennials and Gen Z kids are just in front of the computers all day, especially with COVID now playing video games. Video games are like the new social party, right? People are on their headsets playing Fortnite. Uh, stadiums are selling out or they were selling out to actually host video games. Esports athletes are the new athletes. Um, I mean, they even get drug tested uh, for things like Adderall and Ritalin. So it's a serious oh, bi- it's a big business. Yeah, there's like actually scouts that go to these tournaments, scout these guys, and then drug test them. It's it's amazing. Um, you know, like the, the the prize for the Fortnite tournament was more than Tiger won. Tiger Woods won in his last. Um, in yeah, his last, so prize pools yeah. are getting big. Yeah, so that shows you it's a growth market, and you know you got to follow follow the talent, and the talent is kids. And so we think that eventually there's going to be a blockchain game that changes it uh, and makes kids like basically play a game that they don't even know is on, ch- on the chain, but it is. And so and another thing is like just because there is a blockchain based game, you know, a lot of that can be uh, the blockchain element can just be where you store the NFTs or where transactions are finalized and secured. The game and the gameplay doesn't necessarily have to be on chain and it can be just as quick and fast, uh, as a normal game you'd see played like, like a Fortnite or a Call of Duty. Um, and so yeah, I think that's an important distinction because, yeah. go ahead. no, 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 like you said, you're, yeah. you're right. Yeah, because there, you know, there's, I know early on there was a couple people involved in the space who came to the space from, um, they were basically doing video game, uh, skins and um, those type of things, in-game video kind of things that you could purchase like a sword or a a hat or something. And this was a huge business in China. Um, And I know it's like you said, it's growing all over the world and especially here in the U.S. And I think that's an important distinction, too, of how much what needs to be on a quote unquote unquote blockchain and what needs to be decentralized and what doesn't. So as you mentioned, the game could kind of take place for using like a MySQL database or something and kind of traditional load balancing databases that Google and 
Hadoop and MongoDB kind of use, but they, let's say if it's an actual sword that you're purchasing, uh, and I read an interesting story about there's a, a, kind of a small group of people or in, in a growing group that spend real money. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars and even into the millions on these in-game uh, swords and kind of skins. And then, you know, let's say if the game shuts down or something, then, you know, they, they can't take that with them. So that's kind of like a rare good that, as you said, could be stored in an opcode or, or however that token model works on, on some type of a secure chain. But the rest of the game could take place separately. Yeah. Is that kind of what you're uh, referring to? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think using, so like, you know, this goes to like a, uh, like kind of like a esoteric conversation of what blockchains are good for. Blockchains are slow and inefficient, right? Yeah, sure. There's ways to, to speed it up by, um, having, you know, maybe proof of stake where you have a certain amount of validators that can, uh, validate blocks quickly, but like traditional proof of work blockchains are pretty slow and inefficient. And that is a feature. It's not a bug. Um, and it's done that on purpose. So like yeah. if you're thinking about what is good on a blockchain, um, not a whole lot of, not a whole lot of, uh, s- systems make sense on a blockchain. Money does make sense on a blockchain, uh, because you want it to be, uh, you want the ledger to be open. You want everyone to be able to participate and download the history and see where the money's moving. So that's why Bitcoin makes sense. But like having a, something like a gambling, gambling blockchain based game, where you need instant finality and quick transactions and the money to go back and forth, that really doesn't make that much sense, right? So we think like ideologically, like just having the settlement layer be on chain and having all the gameplay be on something, what you said, like a MySQL or something like that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, with that said, like to your point, there's other games out there right now, like NFTs and digital art are taking off, uh, within crypto. Like I think, uh, you know, you have like these games like Decentraland or the new one is like Sandbox, uh, where these virtual worlds and, uh, unique pieces of virtual land are selling for over like 250, $300,000, uh, with the intent of like basically you buy the land, you buy the virtual land, you have a developer build it out and then you license it or rent it to, um, someone else. Uh, you know, in Decentraland, like you can have a virtual, uh, like a, a virtual Coachella or a virtual fashion show. I know like, you know, Gucci and Prada were renting space in Decentraland to kind of have to advertise there. So I think, yeah. So it's just like one of these things where, especially with the state of the world right now where everyone's inside and, you know, social distancing, uh, we see a lot of growth uh, areas of growth in this, in this space. Um, and it's not just it's not just blockchain companies. You know, there's a uh, there's traditional VR and things like that 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 are trying to get into this this type this type of space. So we think it's a huge growth area. I don't know what games are going to come out of it, but like in terms of the tokens, that's the hardest thing because like let's say I'm playing. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of a game called like Axie Infinity. Um, Axie Infinity is basically kind of like a Pokemon. Um, it's a card game, but you combine like Pokemon and, uh, like a hearth of stone is another combination of it. And okay. it's, it's just one of these games where like right now it's in an alpha phase and you use Ethereum to buy your axes and you can like breed them and things like that. You could save them, you could trade them. Uh, and as they get better, they get stronger. But now Axie Infinity wants to introduce a token into the, into the system. And, mm-hmm. 
the question becomes, well, is that token necessary for Axie to, to proliferate and be a great game? It's a great game now in the alpha phase. But if they introduce a token, does value accrete to the token holders? Does value accrete to the IP holders and like the creators of the game? And these are the difficult questions we have to answer. And that's where tokenomics come into play. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, how do you differentiate or how do you think about the difference between, let's say, if first off, the question is, does the game need an actual token? And I think, let's say they want to do a token and, you know, they can, they can do that and they can have it be called, you know, whatever game token. And they, maybe they just have that in their traditional database or something like that. And then, as you said, I could see a future where, where kids growing up now would want to kind of hold that. Now, I don't know if it would accrue value on a secondary market, but um, kind of, that's kind of another question. But when you look at Amazon, Amazon gift cards is just a very basic example where people actually use Amazon gift cards as currency all around the world because they're easily transferable. They're, they have kind of like a, the nature of kind of like a lot of what money needs to be that you can buy anything with it yeah. <laughs> almost. Yeah. Um, and so obviously, you know, it can be censored. There's a lot of issues with it, but it's better than the alternatives of some of their fiat currency. So the question there is, um, I guess not so much do they, well, first off, as you said, do they need a token, but differentiating does the token need to have token economics and, and accrue value on a secondary market or, or could it just be in the game itself? Or maybe we'll see some of both. I, I think we will see some of both. And I think it's going to be initially, I think, so initially I think it's going to be driven by uh, the demand of the people in the game. So like, for instance, these kids playing, let's just use Axie Infinity because it's something I've been looking at a lot. Um, like, how can we make this Axie token be valuable to players within the ecosystem who are already playing Axie? And there's things we can do. We could do like, uh, you, we could put a yield on the token. So you get the token, you stake it to secure the network. And the more you stake it, the bigger, the larger, the longer you stake it. And the more you stake, the larger your yield gets. Um, the more mm-hmm. games you play, the more games you play, uh, the larger your yield gets. Um, for every portion of, for every time you use your Axie token to buy something, uh, within the game, or like if you were like going back to your skins point, if you buy an Axie or you, uh, level up your Axie by buying it a skin or giving it more, uh, uh, shield points or whatever, that a portion of that purchase price goes into a community pool. And then that community pool is paid out to the users. So it's kind of like a self-perpetuating or a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, the more you play it, the more you get, uh, the more you use it, the more it goes into the community pool. That community pool is circulated back into the players who are staking and playing. And, and the more people are playing, the, the bigger the, the user base gets, the more valuable these things become because the demand is increasing. The demands function shift to the right. Uh, that drives, you know, more and more people towards the game. And, and that theoretically, uh, if you hold supply constant, that should increase the price of the token. Um, another thing is like, if if you can get that tokenomics correct uh and you can get enough of the supply to be staked so that it's rare uh or that the, the, the circuit circulating supply is is small um that th- should theoretically increase the price on the secondary market um 
you know, people hate speculators. Uh, people don't like the fact that, uh, speculators are able to kind of, right. uh, but speculators, uh, historically, uh, are good for, for, uh, you know, for value. Is, uh, liquidity provider. <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. I mean, so, you know, speculators are not bad, uh, in general. Like if they're holding it and they're not trading it, that actually increases the price of the token, uh, and, or, or currency or whatever. And if people that, don't have that same view as the speculator want to sell it and provide liquidity to buyers. They're free to do that. So it's speculators are not bad. And I just think like if you get the staking economics and you get the tokenomics of the game right and you increase the demand within the ecosystem for a game, then that will attract external demand um, and that will increase the price in the secondary market. But it's tough to get the tokenomics right, man. Like, you know, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of uh, studies done around this. Uh, you know, everyone talks about MV equals PQ as the tokenomics model, uh, where if the velocity of the token is increasing, the price never has to go up. Uh, these are, this has never really been proven. It's like a closed end system. Like people talk about it because Bernisky is obviously OG in the space, but it's never been proven. Um, and we're still figuring out what token models work. So I think someone's yeah. going to get it right and it's going to be very good. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, with that type of model, I, I guess the question that comes up is, okay, you know, can that type of model be done on a, on a centralized database? And then what level of decentralization do you need? So as we talked about there, I think there's some room there for decentralizing some of that. Like with money, as we talked about, it has to be way on the other side of the spectrums. So there, maybe there's around 20 validators where they're controlling the actual uh, kind of blockchain and the database and the, the governance and management of that system rather than just one company. Is that where you see room for having some decentralization and then making sure the trade-offs are enough to where, as we talked about, programming some of these blockchains is really intensive and there's a lot of issues there. So how do you come down on that spectrum of how much of it needs to be decentralized? Yeah, that's a great question. Look, I think the level of decentralization depends on the purpose of whatever the token is or the, 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 uh, or the, the block, the purpose of the chain. So for example, like, I don't mind. I don't think you go straight from centralization to decentralization. It's kind of like a, it's a progression. So, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, and, and I think that's fine. I don't think you have to immediately go to, um, for, you don't, you don't go from centralized to decentralized overnight. It has to be a progression. So in this case, uh, if for, for a game like Axie, uh, or any game at, at all for that matter, there has to be a blend between, uh, the, if you own the most tokens, you get the most vote because then it just becomes uh, who, who's the wealthiest person, right? Uh, and, and that's not good either because then, you know, you get these ETH whales that just buy up everything and then they control everything. So it has to be a blend between, um, ownership of the tokens, so wealth and as well as, um, pl- playing. Like who is playing the most? Who's in it the most? Who's spending the most time on the platform? Uh, who's, who's contributing the most to the ecosystem? And that is generally the players. Um, and so I think as long as there is a blend between, uh, ownership, contribution, and, uh, community, then the transition from centralized to decentralized is better. 
But in the beginning, I don't mind that this company is driving decisions. I think one of the problems you see with like a lot of these uh, systems, a lot of these layer ones is that uh, they don't have, it, it's not run like a business. There's no KPIs that are determining uh, if, if it's being successful or not. And so it's tough for the token to accrete value if you're not driving towards a goal. So I don't mind a leader in the beginning, as long as that leader is willing to kind of uh, like trail off into the sunset when a certain level of decentralization has been met. Um, and I don't mind centralization in the beginning. I really don't, because I think you, you, t- you don't cut the head off before you know which way you're walking. Um, and yeah. in this case, I just think it's important. But, yeah, and how do you feel about some of these, uh, the talk about decentralizing something like a Facebook or a Twitter? Part of the conversation, it gets a little muddled because as you mentioned, maybe, maybe the piece that we really need to take back our data is doing some type of hash algorithm or storing something in an opcode or storing like some piece of uh, data on a blockchain, whether it's like your personal information that's encrypted and then you only have control of that. Um, um, and then, you know, the rest of the system is still functioning on the regular kind of HTTP protocol or the similar systems that we have now, but it's maybe just like one piece of it. Um, and then, and then kind of the issue there too is, is when you go way to the other side of decentralization that if you are the one really in control, let's just say if you're in control of your login and a few pieces of personal information, um, and then you you want to control who shares that information. You share that with Equifax or you share that with Facebook. That's that's great. But if you literally don't have five backups in five different places all distributed, uh, you know, you <laughs> there's no reset button <laughs> that you're going to be able to go to Equifax like there is now. And do you think that's something that we need is viable? And do people would people even be able to handle that? Yeah, I I think I'm I'm not a decentralist uh, uh maximalist. Yeah. I'm not. Uh I think a lot and I but I totally hear all the points that everyone makes and I agree with them. I I just think that look, I don't think like you know we we've had attempts at a decentralized Facebook or decentralized social network. Um EOS has tried something, Steam Steam was trying something. Um uh, Twitter said that they were going to look at something in that space. I just think for the average person, uh, and I think it's important to, to say that because in crypto are, you know, we, we think in a bubble. We don't understand that 99.5% of the world doesn't care about crypto yet. We just think that it, like we think in this bubble. So for the average person, I don't think they're thinking about these issues yet, even though they should. And I think the transition from a centralized server uh, where, you know, the company just has all your data to a decentralized one where you're in charge of it. It's a tall ask for people that one, don't realize and two, probably don't care as long as they can yeah. tweet and get their thoughts out. So I really personally, I don't see a decentralized social network taking off anytime in the near term. Um, you know, for a lot of reasons other than network effect. I think network effect is a problem, but I think that's many years, like that's a good problem to have if you can even get something off the ground. I think people don't even care about this enough yet. I mean, they, they say they do, but I think the people that are talking about it the most are people within this uh, cypherpunk digital asset bubble uh, that we think is the norm, but it's not the norm. People don't think about this enough. They should, but they don't. So once we get past that and more people care, I would I think the network effect of having something decentralized would be a lot simpler. 
Um, but the educating people is the first point. Uh, and then getting them onto a platform where they're going to move off of a Facebook, off of an Instagram, off of a Twitter and onto this, you know, decentralized version. That's going to be a few years away. Um, but the education is the first thing. So we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I hope, I hope we get there, but I don't think we're getting there. Like I think, uh, I think also company, these companies, you know, Facebook is, uh, like a very powerful company. They're going to see that and they're going to try to find ways. They already are, you know, with Libra finding ways to kind of, uh, decentralize the offerings they have. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And going back to what we talked about with, uh, the kind of the youth and video games and something like Twitch, which I technically, I guess you could classify it in kind of a social networking category, but, um, and not that that's, they're going to put that on a blockchain or anything like we talked about, but just the gaming aspect and how that's going to come up will be a, a real interesting use case yeah. for, for, for some of these platforms. Now you mentioned Libra. Let's talk real quick about stable coins and what the use cases are, you know, the value proposition. We've seen different types of stable coins come out. There's a lot of them that are just kind of, it's like a USD and it's like dollar for dollar. Um, so without going into some of the more convoluted ones, uh, how do you think the stable coins are going to be as far as importance for this next phase um, we just experienced the having now to, for people to be able to get money into, let's say, a digital asset exchange, and maybe they want to flip from Bitcoin to dollars, but they can't just move from an ACH transfer or something like that, or maybe they can't even use that type of mechanism depending on the country. Yeah. That you're in, because a lot of people don't realize they th- they kind of think, oh, we'll just use Venmo or just do an ACH to your bank, but crypto is very global, so yeah, a lot of people don't uh, understand why the stable coins exist. So talk a little about that and, um, and what your views are there. Yeah. So I think stable coins are the first killer app of crypto. Like I, I like other than Bitcoin, uh, you know, what I mean? uh, like, uh, you know, you have, I think stable coins are already. So right now the tether market cap is sitting at around $8 billion. Um, and <laughs> That's almost like double from where it was about six months ago. Um, and what you're seeing is there's two, there's a, there's a lot of uses for tether and there's a lot of uses for stable coins in general. Um, and I, I don't even think most of this, a lot of this tether isn't even sitting on exchanges. So the use cases for stable coins are obviously to buy Bitcoin, to trade, to sit in it, to, to keep a stable asset value if you don't want to buy or sell yet. But the other ones are trade finance. Um, and I know a lot of exchanges park their profits in, in Tether and, and pay their suppliers and, and, uh, and vendors in Tether. Uh, and then the other thing is like digital the demand for the dollar. So going back to what you said, a lot of people in many countries, like in the United States, Venmo, PayPal, these things were great. I have no problem getting in and out of dollars and getting it into my bank account. But for a lot of people, it's not that they're going into uh, Tether to get Bitcoin. It's actually the opposite. They're going into uh, Bitcoin. So they, trans- they, 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 they change their like Australian dollar or Hong Kong dollar or the CNY. They trade it for Bitcoin, OTC. Exactly. And then they use that to get into Tether. So Tether is really a, the, like it is a store of value. It's a, it's a, it's money in my opinion. Yeah. It's totally, it's totally money. 
Um, and people accept it as money. You know, like I, I, there's a lot of anecdotal data out there saying that um, Russia and China, when they do deals, they do it for Tether. Uh, and there's many reasons for that. The first being like, you know, wire transfers are costly and take time, whereas Tether takes on Ethereum, on the Ethereum network, you know, it, it takes 15 minutes to settle uh, and you have it in your account and it's there. Um, yes, there's, you know, regulatory concerns around Tether, but I think, you know, the market doesn't care. The United States government uh, and regulatory regime in the U.S. may care uh, and, you know, the FATF rules may care, but like the, 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 the market, the traders, the people that hold Tether, they don't care. Um, and ultimately, if there's confidence in Tether, which which the market is telling you there is, uh, there's demand for it. Now, you have Tether is like mostly uh, not for the U.S., even though everyone has it. Like, you know, in the U.S., you have like USDC, uh, GUSD, TrueUSD, things like that. And what you're seeing is you have other exchanges popping up like you have the Binance, the Binance USD, uh, Binance dollar. Uh, obviously, Coinbase is USDC. USDC is just a more regulated tether um, mm-hmm. with, with stricter KYC and AML rules. So, you know, the Coinbase is seeing that and copying the model and 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 putting a more regulated wrapper around it. But I think te- like I think stable coins are huge, and not just for not just for Bitcoin. I think it's huge for everything that we talked about: the demand for the dollar, digitalization. Um, spending it, you know, I think vendors are going to start, you know, vendors not in the U.S. are going to start accepting Tether because they believe in it. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, big, I'm bullish on stablecoins. That makes sense. And do you, is your view that this is going to be something like we saw Libra try to come with a consortium that was kind of shot down, but, you know, they were kind of looking into it. Regulators were kind of looking into, like, I could see them accepting something like that in the future, but obviously it was too soon and there was a lot of reasons it didn't get pushed through. But we even saw Spotify join that group. So as you mentioned, like music streaming services, video game companies, those type of things. Do you see this as kind of a winner-take-all where there's going to be a consortium um, almost kind of like we, we have with the SDR, which is kind of a basket of currencies. Um, or do you see this as being more uh, delineated between separate companies for now? Do you mean like in the sense of like stablecoin usage or like what do you mean exactly? Yeah, so sorry. Let me clarify. Like, do you see you, uh, the Coinbase USDC, the Gemini coin? Do you see all of them maybe either going away or all converging to 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 do something together? And then maybe so in the first case would be maybe Tether wins out and everything else goes away, or we see something where everyone tries to get together and maybe they even try to like uh, move and do some. Um, partnership yeah. with Tether or something no, like that. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I get, I get it now. Look, I think, well, what happens with, I, I don't think we're going to see a, uh, a consolidation of the stable coins. And the reason for that is the reason for that is as follows. Like if I generate, like you have to follow the flows. When I generate uh, USDC, right? I send my money to, uh, I send my US dollars to uh, Coinbase uh, and Coinbase takes those U.S. dollars, charges me uh, an issuance fee, and gives me back uh, 0.998, uh, you know, USDC for every dollar I give. Coinbase then takes that dollar that I gave them and invests it in the bank or invests it in some uh, very low risk, uh, maybe 
bonds or something where they're generating yield. Uh, so I, so the reason you're seeing the exchanges pop up with their own stable coins is because it's a yield enhancer for them. They're getting, they're getting issuance and redemption fees as well as yield on the dollars that they're taking in. Um, so I don't think we're going to see consolidation because it's a very powerful mechanism. Like, you know, they're charging me both sides of the transaction and they're getting yield on it in the bank. Now, granted, yields are low, so it's not much, uh, but it is something. And another thing is like, once they have the USDC issued, that that digital dollar, it's it's more likely to be kept within their Coinbase ecosystem until ecosystem. Yeah. Right. So it's just another way to kind of offer financial services to your customers. So I don't really see and it's a great way to grow market share. So I see this as a battleground between companies. That's why Binance has its own stable coin. Another thing Binance is doing, which is super interesting, is like Binance will have like a listing. So like let's say um, Solana is a new asset that listed on Binance, like maybe, um, like a month ago, right? SOL is the kicker. Solana has a pairing with Bitcoin. You could trade Solana against Bitcoin, but the only stable coin you could trade Solana against is BUSD, Binance USD. You can't trade it. You can't trade it against Tether. You can't trade it against PAX. You can only trade it against BUSD. And that's another way to get. Um, that's another way to get your dollars, or your your stable coin to grow, to have market share by having select pairs. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think the stable coin thing is here to stay. I don't really see it consolidating in, in the short run, uh, just because of the growth. I think Tether will always be a sore eye or a black eye for regulators. But I, I mean, um, you know, Tether is Tether's growing, man. You know, Tether's growing. The market likes it. Uh, it's used by a lot. It's used for many purposes. I'm not saying whether it's illicit or not. It's just used for many purposes. Um, and if there's a use case that people just like, like US dollars. Yeah. 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 It, it's just like US dollars. So I don't see any, yeah. it's going to grow. I'm a big state. Many, many purposes. <laughs> um, yeah. now yeah. let's, let's talk, let's switch gears and kind of wrap up going circling back to kind of how we started this conversation so looking from a big picture we just had the bitcoin having um over 18 million already outstanding so you can do the math 21 million uh capped um and let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing just in the market not looking for any particular price projections yeah, no no problem uh, price, uh, you know don't give any price targets but sentiment out there general sentiment and uh, what you're seeing like you said the difference between um derivatives and and spot and and how you're kind of looking at this outlook for the macro environment. And before you start there I just saw here at the uh, Jelly Donut podcast headquarters the uh so it just came across the wires that Fed, uh, Fed Chairman Powell is going to appear on 60 Minutes this Sunday. So harkening back to when uh, Bernanke spoke uh, over 10 years ago, um, I think Powell was already on 60 Minutes, but he's coming back. So um, uh, we'll see what, what that does for markets, Bitcoin and, and stocks and, and, and markets in general. So. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, a great, <laughs> it's a great question, and I'll kind of respond broadly. So, like, look, I think you have – I think you have 10 years of data, uh, that say for the most part, uh, the Bitcoin is not correlated at a statistically significant level to the S&P over the, over time, over 10 years. Right. Um, obviously in times of stress, all correlations go to one. So when the spoos is selling off, uh, and global markets are rattled, uh, you know, 
Bitcoin had a rough day on Black Thursday, 313. Bitcoin had a really rough day. Um, that rough day where Bitcoin halved in price, the wrong halving, was in more, obviously in large part driven by leverage. Uh, and, you know, it, like we track leverage uh, by looking at things like the futures curve and perp funding and things like that. And through Q1 of 2020, the basis, the, the annualized basis, uh, basically how much above spot uh, the one month uh, future was trading was as on an annualized basis was as much as like 20, 30 percent uh, higher. And that is abnormal. Uh, you know, that is, that means market people are, laws are over levered, uh, if they're willing to borrow that much to buy Bitcoin. And, you know, when Bitcoin had a bad day on 313 and everyone had to get liquidated and the price went down, uh, you know, it had, it, it rattled markets. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, in, like, in, when things are going bad, the market finds leverage and it punishes it. That's what happened on 313. Now we bounced quickly. We bounce quickly. We're sitting here at like nine five, uh, about you know two months later, uh, which is phenomenal. But I think that if if I just think it's it's inevitable if if the S and P or global markets have a hard time, Bitcoin will react. Uh, that doesn't mean over long periods of time it's not going to be uncorrelated. Just in these specific short term correlations, they are going to rise. So it's something that we monitor pretty closely. Um, another thing that we look at is like things like put call ratios and things like that and skew, which is, uh, the, if you plot like, um, implied volatility of options on a chart, you'll see that, uh, puts, puts and calls generally should be priced the same at a specific strike. But if the puts are more expensive at a certain, certain strike, that means that people are more nervous and they're more willing to pay for protection. So coming out of 313, the having, you're seeing a positive skew, meaning that puts are more expensive than calls. This is abnormal for crypto because traditionally in crypto, everyone's a permable. Retail is permable. And you, what you'll see is a negative skew, meaning that calls are more expensive than puts. But this has changed since 313. Since 313, you're seeing positive skew. So people are buying protection. People are a little more nervous. Uh, implied volatility on puts is pretty high. Now, like, this is a good thing because that's how traditional markets work. Traditionally in markets, people, people are long, right? So they're willing to pay more mm-hmm. for protection. Um, and that's how it should be generally. If you're long the underlying, if you're long the market, if you're long Bitcoin, you should be willing to pay more to protect yourself with a put than buy more upside with a call. Um, and so we see kind of this transition in, in skew where people are willing to pay for calls. Um, Implied volatility has is elevated right now. It's elevated for a lot of reasons. You know, it was elevated after 313 of the wrong having. It was elevated around the having uh, with the sell-off. You see, you're seeing a lot of volatility in the markets right now. I mean, we went from 10 uh, to 9.2, and then we swept the lows on the having date at 8.2. We bounced to 8.6, uh, and then we went up to 10 again, um, and now we're sitting at 9.5. Markets are um, – there's a lot of volatility right now. Um, and we think that we think that it will subside. It will subside eventually. That's how implied volatility works. It, it, there's none and then there's a lot and then it dies slowly. Um, so over the long run, we see Bitcoin like grinding up. We see it. We, we think it's going to grind, um, you know, to 10 or $12,000, uh, in the near, in the not too distant future. 
Uh, but what we, we're, we're bullish, obviously we're long, but we are monitoring the markets because if we see a reversal in the markets, I know, I know the S&P's had like three or four down days in a row. Uh, we're, we're going to be careful with Bitcoin because Bitcoin is still a risk asset. I don't care what anyone says. It's the riskiest of the risk assets with rates low. People are looking for uh, performance. That's why you see mm-hmm. traditional money managers entering Bitcoin because they need some, they need some, in addition to being, uh, an inflation hedge and store of value, it, it, it does drive returns. Like if it goes up a lot, that's a, that's a source of alpha for these money managers. That doesn't mean it can't go down. Um, so, you know, we're looking at, we're looking at everything. We're looking at the put call ratio. We're looking at applied volatility. We're looking at broader correlations to the market on shorter time frames, 90 days, 30 days, things like that. Uh, we're looking at the CNY USD exchange rate. Um, Cross asset correlations, all these things, um, liquidities, liquidity across, uh, liquidity across certain touch points. Like right now, you know, 10K is a big level. It's a psychological level. A lot of asks are stacked there. Um, I don't think we're just mm-hmm. going to go to it and smash through it. I think it's going to take a few times. You're seeing it already. You know, we ran a 10. We didn't get there. We ran a 10 two days ago. We didn't get there. And now we're selling off a little bit, but we think eventually Bitcoin will break 10,000. Um, and we see it, we see it going to, you know, 13, 14,000, uh, over the course of the year and we'll see what happens then. But, uh, I think for more normal, like buy and hold investors, it's, it's a decent price right now. Um, it, you know, it's not, it's, I think it's fairly valued. I don't think it's cheap, but I don't think it's expensive. Um, and right. you know, it's, I think if you could get it, uh, anywhere in, you know, mid to low eights, that's a good buy. Um, I don't see it going underneath seven, uh, for the rest of the year, unless there's a big, big, uh, global sell off, in which case, you know, who knows with liquidations, cascading liquidations. But yeah, I, I like it. I, I think it's a fair price now. I don't think, I think it's been running. So, uh, if, if you're a buy and hold investor, it's, it's kind of on the high end of the range that we look at. Um, but you know anything from eight five to eight is 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 a good price, and if and anything in the sevens is a screaming buy, and I don't think you'll ever see this year below six again because I just think there's a lot of value investors that are willing to buy it at six. Um, like if you look at like the three thirteen having, it didn't sit under six for long, and when it was below five, that was due to to liquidations. It wasn't due to uh, it was due to forced hands not selling. Um, so under six, like if it hits under six, like it's not going to stay there long. I think you could see sevens with, um, some, some global macroeconomic issues during sell-offs. You could see under seven, but anything from like, in my opinion, anything from seven and a half to eight and a half is a great long-term buy and you should be willing to gobble it up there if you're long, long-term. Uh, that's great, Hassan. Really appreciate your time. I saw a funny tweet uh, where they were saying it was it was pretty funny that oil went to zero, <laughs> actually negative before Bitcoin did. So yeah, I thought it was kind of funny, but yeah. um, really appreciate your time, and it was uh, it was great having you. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. Uh, all right, bye. Thanks for joining us today. 
If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at jellydonutpod or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.